episode 48, I can't believe we are almost at 50. It's filled with fun fraud facts, including Disney stories and horses and leasing of horses. Melissa and I met over LinkedIn and have stayed in touch ever since due to our love of speaking, training, and the National Speakers Association, and of course, Pink Collar Crime. This is an extra fun episode, and Melissa takes it like a champ. Get ready. Let's go. Okay, you guys, I am going to have so much fun today with our guest, Melissa Galasso, and we are going to quickly start with a speed round, and then you can give your whole shtick. So, Mac or PC? PC, absolutely. Um, My kid goes to a Mac school, and I prohibit it from entering my home. (laughs) Um, Who makes better embezzlers, women or men? Oh, hands down, women. (laughs) And who is a famous crook? or cop that you want to go to dinner with or cocktails. Absolutely. Actually, I had the opportunity to have dinner once with Cynthia Cooper, which was uh, one of the highlights of my uh, experiences here. Um, but it was a group dinner and I would love to do it again as a one-on-one. But I attended a seminar that she did. And afterwards, we had the opportunity to go out to dinner with her. And it was really cool to have to discuss it. Um, and believe it or not, I was teaching accounting at the time uh, at a university and my students all wrote a paper on her book. And I ended up obviously redacting all important information and sending her some of my better ones. And she wrote me back. So kind of cool. You know what, that is what this community is about is that like, I mean, I don't remember how we met. I'm thinking it's LinkedIn. I think we stalked each other. Um, So yeah. Okay. So Melissa, give your elevator speech and it can be to the third floor or to the Eiffel Tower. Sure. So I teach continuing professional education for CPAs. I specialize in custom training for CPA uh, CPA firms in particular, um, focusing on the audit and accounting area, and in particular with a niche in nonprofit and governmental. So a lot of yellow book, a lot of single audit, but really fun uh, having the opportunity to do custom training. My background obviously is a licensed CPA, but I have gone on to get my master trainer designation from the Association from Talent Development, my certified professional in talent development, and my certified speaking professional from the National Speakers Association. So I really like to chat, um, but I love instructional design and I like playing with courses to make them really interactive and not your traditional CPE. So we love what we do and we have the opportunity to work with amazing firms all across the country. Well, that's the thing is I think that we are just both nerds and we'd stay in school if we could, because like, I mean, I saw that you got that you, you know, the training and development designation and then huge green envy, the certified speaking professional with the National Speakers Association. You know, that's a huge, I think only 12% of all speakers get it eight or 12%. It's so I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work. You need to give five years of data of all of your speaking events. And then they have like calls with your clients and then they do surveys with your clients. And then you have to give an actual demo reel, like going way back. And it was, um, it was probably the most, uh, you know, difficult period where I was like, didn't know. And you're going through this whole process. So, um, I thought actually, believe it or not, the CPA exam was easier than the CPTD (laughs) in terms of taking it. I actually got a better score in the C 
CPA exam than I did on the CPTD. And I found this uh, certified speaking professional when you had someone actually evaluating you for what you do, right? It's not about your ability to answer questions correctly or pass a test because you're a good test taker, but should you know actually view your work and give you critique on how you deliver your message. So um, I've been very fortunate to, you know, continuous learning is one of our core values at Glossal Learning Solutions. And I continue to, you know, really try to push the envelope on continuing my development as well. Which this leads to one of my little, I, I asked Melissa first if I could have a lot of fun with this conversation. And she's like, of course. So one of the things that I saw, and we stalked each other on LinkedIn, Facebook, and groups and everything like that, is that she's taking Disney courses. And what do I say about a lot of fraudsters? They all go to Disney. So, and she also showed me the book that she has, Be Our Guest. And I'm fascinated by the whole Disney thing. How did you decide to choose Disney? And I'm hoping you're not embezzling to take your team there. I am not embezzling to take my team there. I promise all profits are real. Um, but uh, we decided on the Disney courses because I honestly um, tested them out before I signed up for the full set of courses. Um, Disney has the Disney Institute and they're known for customer service training. That's really where they get their background from. And Fun fact, when I was an intern at Deloitte, right, so go way back when I was still in college, that's where we did. We actually did it at the um, at the Swan was our training. And so my very first like formal training at a college was at the Swan um, and Disney does a really good job. And so they have three uh, full day courses that they do. They do employee engagement, leadership excellence, and then their quality service. And obviously I would have loved to have taken them in person, but they have an online, you know, live online version. And so I took one of their courses and they have fantastic instructional design. They play videos, they move us around. Uh, and I was sitting there as like the participant trying to learn the material, but also as the instructional designer, like writing down best practices where I thought they could improve. I was like, oh, that learning objective is not really well written. Uh, but this one, <laughs> so I was like, I really enjoyed myself. And so I've continued to take their courses. And when we were trying to decide what we were going to do this year for our uh, group retreat, I want to get all my employees together so we can kind of have time together. We're a remote workforce. So I have people in New York, I have people in Atlanta. So um, one place that everyone can get a direct flight is Orlando. So at the end of the day, everyone can fly in and we can all land within 10 minutes of each other. That's how often you can fly into Orlando. We themed it around the Be Our Guest. And Be Our Guest is a book that's much shorter than obviously the three six-hour days I have done that focuses on quality service. And that's something that's really important to our brand and to you know higher end custom training you have to have a good system in place. So processes, system, and people are really important. And so that's how we got into the Disney field. So we will all be going down to Orlando. We will be socially distant in all the appropriate ways, uh, but we are going to have our group retreat. Yes, and uh, we are going to Disney. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to have to hashtag you that week. Um, so this leads to another sort of new speed round question is, what is the best money you have ever spent professionally? I think for me, the best money I have ever spent is, you know, taking the time to develop myself. I have spent a lot of time over, you know, going through coaches. When I first set up my business, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew what I was doing. I didn't want to do anymore but I honestly did not know what I wanted to do. And so I sat down with a career coach and I was basically like, I hate my life and I don't know what I'm going to do. And she did the whole, you know, take a disc, do this, like find yourself, figure out what you want to do. And then she's like, well, you should start your own business. And I was like, 
I'm a CPA. We're risk averse people. We don't start our own businesses. And she's like, no, no, you really, you have a passion around this. You'd be excellent at it. And I was like, think you're crazy lady. And we literally like every two weeks we would meet and she's like, okay, set up your LLC. And then we come back and she's like, okay, do this. And like my homework assignments. And then, you know, after a period of time, I had a business with a logo and I had clients. I was like, this is amazing. Um, but I have always decided to spend the money that I make in a way that can help professionally. So I've worked with coaches and different coaches for different things. Uh, and so really investing in my continuing ed. And so while I'm a CPA and I have to do 40 hours of continuing education, I think of that as an opportunity. I also invest in things that don't qualify for CPE, but really develop professionally. And all my people get CPE, um, not CPE because they're not CPAs, but they get an allocation of budget for their continuing education as well. So I've had people, uh, you know, operations people who go on to take courses in uh, various items. My marketing person's taking an amazing course with Nikki Roush coming up. And so we have decided that if we want to, you know, have a business that works, you're going to spend the money to develop your people. And I think of myself just like anyone else needing that development yeah that um totally i love this question um because everyone is like yeah i just spend it you know it's reinvesting your profits into yourself and uh and you were a reluctant entrepreneur which um i am a very reluctant entrepreneur it's probably because i can't really work for anyone anymore Uh, (laughs) I don't think I could go back to a nine to five at this point. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Not that accounting was ever a nine to five. Yeah, no, it was like what? Nine to midnight. <laughs> yeah. Nine to midnight. Um, okay. And then the next thing that I, oh my gosh, this is so funny. Melissa, she has a daughter and she has a daughter that has a horse habit. <laughs> yes. And- my daughter's been riding since she was five. So, and she will be 14 next month. So we have been riding a long time and we do have a horse habit. And I would like to tell you, it's not even a habit now, it's a lifestyle. Uh, So um, when you're like planning the weekends, you're like, oh no, I can't do that. I have a horse show. And that like naturally comes out of my mouth now, but yes, we have a horse habit. I know that's uh, another red flag for you there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But okay. It's your daughter. Did like, did she watch the Olympics? Not only did we record the Olympics, we watched it in slow motion. And we also criticized the the, uh, speaker who was giving the blow by blow. And then we also watched it many, many times to see what we would have done differently or how we could have not chipped that item. And so we have done a complete analysis of the Olympics. uh, And so she was really excited. She also swims. So we did a lot of swimming and a lot of, uh, of the equestrian and, and thankfully she is a jumper. So the jumper, the show jumping was her area of expertise. And so, um, definitely one of those areas where it's, you know, every four years, I guess in the scenario five, um, where you have that opportunity to look at some of the best of the best. And a few years ago, we took her to the world equestrian games when they were here in Tryon, North Carolina. Um, and it's just amazing to see the, you know, the, the quality there, but it is one of the biggest money pits I've ever seen. So, <laughs> so I think, I'm not stepping out of tune with this is Bruce Springsteen's daughter was on the Olympic team. <laughs> Jesse Springsteen, who my daughter recognizes, but does not recognize Bruce Springsteen. Oh my God. <laughs> and then Ava Jobs, also uh, Steve Jobs' daughter. We've seen ride many times at Tryon. She does a lot of competitions at the same competitions my daughter's at. 
And she didn't recognize Steve Jobs, but she goes, oh my God, there's Ava Jobs. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm. yep, this whole generation has no clue about the parents, but it was all in on the the daughters and the, of the, you know, these famous people who know recognition, but yes, Bruce Springsteen's daughter got a a silver medal in the show jumping. Well, so I don't know if you know this fun fraud fact, but Melissa King, who stole $42 million from the Sandhogs Union in New York, Part of it was for her daughter's equestrian habit, and she actually leased a horse to Jessica Springsteen. So there's a fraud connection to the boss, the boss's daughter. So kind of crazy. And that's kind of funny that you talk about leasing because the most common question I get, I use leasing in almost all of my leasing classes. There is an 842, topic 842 for FASB and GASB 87, both include an exception to the standard for biological assets. And so if you've ever taken one of my leases courses, the first thing I explain a biological asset, I say, hey, I have a contract. It's several pages. It's an identifiable asset. It's for a period of time, plenty of exchange but it's excluded from GAP for topic 842 and GASB 87 purposes. And so I use that all the time in training and people always say, you can lease a horse. And I'm like, yeah, you can lease, you can lease anything. And so it's usually one of those really funny conversations that you have that only horse people know that many of us lease a horse. In fact, my daughter's leasing a horse right now from Wellington, Florida. And so we brought it up here and had it trailered up to Charlotte, North Carolina so that she could have her new show jumping horse. Oh my gosh, this is so funny. So yeah, I'm going to keep my eye on you and your daughter because the horses are pink flag. Oh my gosh, no, too funny. It's just- They are a money pit, but it's definitely something that brings her joy. And if you've ever seen her face while she's riding, you'll know that it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I have a a friend whose husband said, the more you spend, the harder I'll work. So that's kind of like your daughter. The more she spends on horses and swimming, the more you'll work. So it all works. Yeah. And as long as she's not talking to boys or having any life outside of the barn, I'm okay with that right now. It's a good time for her to be stuck at the barn all the time. So I rode horses and my dad had this thing. When you can jump three and a half feet in perfect form, I will buy you a horse. Well, he knew how long it would take to get to three and a half feet. And he knew that boys would enter the picture. So he made a bet that he knew he would never have to pay out on. So yeah. And sure enough, I got, I hit three feet and then boys. So yeah, my daughter just hit a meter, which is what three, three, I think. So yeah, yeah. we're, we're getting close to that three and a half, but again, I'm, I'm holding out on the no boy thing keep my fingers crossed. Ah, that is so funny. Okay. <laughs> um, what's your, what's your take on fraud? I, I want to hear your take on fraud because we speak on different topics, but I, I love to hear always CPAs takes on fraud. Absolutely. I mean, I, one of my favorite classes to teach, and I get a lot of opportunities to do it now more than ever is risk assessment. And so often risk assessment is seen as this sort of perfunctory, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to still do whatever procedures is in my audit program anyway. So I'm just going to flow through it. And over the years, the AICPA has been more and more about tailoring your audit program and really doing a risk assessment, including a fraud risk assessment. And I always come across firms who are like, well, my clients won't commit fraud, right? And like they they already have this sort of notion. And so um, over the last year, especially with COVID, you know, there's been a lot of alerts that came out. The Government Accountability Office, uh, GAO, issued a yellow book alert that basically said, hey, by the way, you should probably consider fraud when there are trillions of dollars of additional funds floating out there for governments and nonprofits, right? Take a closer look at the fraud, right? And think about it from an opportunity perspective. If you have fewer people uh, who are working, doing furloughs or layoffs, 
or you have people doing jobs that they're not trained for, or we just have all of this money and no, you know, no way to spend it. One of my favorite clients is a government. And I was looking at their financial statements and I'm like, Hey, I know you got coronavirus relief funds back in March, but I looked at your financials for June and you didn't spend any money. And my favorite response was, they're like, yeah, we didn't spend anything because we didn't know what we were going to do and what controls were we were going to put in place. So we didn't spend it until we set up a program and we set up a whole process around it. We got the controls in place and we spent all the money in our 21 fiscal year. And I was like, well, and I look at a lot of other governments and I'm like, oh, you spent $26 million in three months. And that means you literally from the day you got it in March, so June 30, you managed to spend 26 million. Like what kind of systems did you have in place? So, um, you know, for me, teaching government nonprofit, a lot of times people think mission or, you know, these, these individuals are willing to take lower salaries because they're committed and they don't have this, you know, the fraud risk assessments are really not where they need to be. And so giving them that opportunity to dive into risk and really understand that you can identify something and do really specific procedures. Instead of doing a hundred procedures that are irrelevant, do three really good ones. And then your audit has value um, is something that's taken years for me to convince firms. But once they make the switch, they're like, you know how much more efficient we are? I'm like, you know how much more effective you are (laughs) by doing the actual tailoring? So for me, I think that, you know, from the audit perspective, which is my area of expertise, is really about not this, you know, they're definitely committing fraud or they're not committing fraud, but coming in it from where's the risk and what can we do to try to mitigate that risk and looking at it from that perspective. Okay, I don't know if this is going to be politically correct to talk about, but we're going to go there because I, I know you'll have an opinion. Um, <laughs> I have an opinion on everything. We're good. That's why we like each other. Um, so you have, I'm going to say the big four audit firms, the big four firms. When you see a story, when they have failed miserably, does your head explode like mine does? Well, I think about all the training that they get, because if you think about it, like when did I get my best training for free where it didn't come out of my pocket? I started in the big four and I know they spend money on development, but at the end of the day, it's the business decisions that people make that turn things upside down. And it blows my mind that someone can have a, you know, a client that big and not take a look at that. And you're like, really, you didn't like review the contract. Like what part of auditing (laughs) includes skipping the underlying document? Um, And so, you know, I hate to throw anyone under the bus because we're all human and we all make mistakes and no one does a perfect audit because there is no such thing as a perfect audit. Um, But there are some basics that really just need to be consistent. And I find too often there's this business consideration that overrides quality. uh, And I'm hopeful that one day we'll turn the corner on this uh, because right now, Anytime I say, well, you can do this procedure or that. And they're like, well, that'll cost more money to do. And I'm like, you know, you're in a for-profit business, right? So firms are not meant to be not-for-profit. They're supposed to generate income. But we always go with this lower bidder mentality that we have to do it for as cheap as possible. And I'm sitting there thinking, you're doing a public service. I spoke at the peer review conference and I think I had them rolling in the aisles at one point because someone was like, if I did that, I would have no clients. I'm like, well, you know, this is a for-profit business. So we have to, you know, no one walks into their doctor's office and says, can you do this for cheaper? Or can I find the cheapest lawyer, right? Why is it okay to ask for the cheapest auditor? Yeah, Um, it's amazing because in our personal lives, do we go and buy the cheapest pair of shoes? No. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's just, but people want government to do it cheap. 
And it's like, what is it? You can give it, you can have two out of the three things, cheaper, faster, but quality. Yeah. And it, it drives me crazy. I, it's just, and people think it makes people think less of government employees. And I was a government employee and I, I worked my tea hiney off. Like it's yeah. Oh, so, so frustrating. Um, so these are the cheesy sort of questions that I like to ask, because I think they're really, really helpful to the great women in fraud audience. If you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, which actually, I mean, your daughter's getting close. What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself that it's okay to share your opinion when other people tell you it's not. Um, I spent a lot of my early career, people were like, you need to step back and you need to not talk so much and you need to like just sit and, and earn your stripes. And um, at the time I was like, well, maybe I'm just doing this wrong. And I look back now and I'm like, you know what? I know like it's okay to share your thoughts and to have an opinion on things. And I don't think that you have to wait your turn. I think that's a, a crazy consideration. If you have a thought that needs to be shared, right? Share it because it benefits everybody. I, when I teach risk assessment and I teach specifically having the fraud conversation, I always say, start with your youngest person first, the person least close to this client, because they're going to give you the most novel and different ideas. The person who's been on this for 20 years has nothing novel to say, right? The person who is newest is going to say something and maybe it's not great and maybe it's not applicable to this particular client, but at least it's a different perspective. And I find that we have, you know, especially in firms, we have this like hierarchy where the partner is just brilliant and you're just there to like do work. And I'm sort of thinking, I'm like, over the years, if people had just listened, <laughs> or, you know, there is an opportunity to listen to the, the staff who has an opinion or has a thought that needs to be shared. But if the partner comes into the fraud risk assessment and says, okay, the fraud risks are A, B, C, and D, did I miss anything? Who's going to comment on that? Right. So um, I would go back and just say, keep sharing your opinion and don't let someone tell you that it's not worth it. Oh, that's, that's wonderful advice. And I'm reading this new book called Flux, and I will send you a link to it. And um, it's, it's fascinating. It's like eight superpowers. And it's one of the things is to um, have a portfolio career. And, um, and, you know, this also goes to great women in fraud and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because when you have a bunch of, I'm going to say, old dudes at the table, like, and, and part of influx is when you have the CEO who's making 300 times the pay of the average employee, how do they know what the average person wants in life? They can't. They're, it's you know, The fork in the road is just huge. So I love to hear this from you because like I started reading the book. I know the woman like via um, LinkedIn and everything like that. And it's, I'm making both my kids going to read it. It's called Flux. I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I tell my daughter all the time. We had a good battle. She goes to private school and we had a battle. I'm sure you, you remember this fiercely for on Facebook where she went to school and she was wearing a shirt that said unstoppable on it. And she was given detention and she was forced to clean the tables after she had, everyone had eaten at lunch um, and they didn't notify me. So one, like that was the biggest thing, like no notification. And then two, 
that, um, you know, they forced, uh, you know, hard labor for free there. Uh, and I was like, you know, she cleared it with her guidance counselor ahead of time who gave her bad information. And technically the school does say in the agreement, right, that you're not supposed to wear clothes with words on it unless it says Gucci, that's okay. But unstoppable is very <laughs> offensive. Um, and so as a result, you know, I, you know, we went to town on that one and we really talked about how this dress code was clearly written by old white men, right. And not written by people who have, you know, like the length of the shirt under the armpits only shows up in the women's side. There's nothing for the men on how big their armpits are supposed to be, or, you know, the length of her skirt or the length of her shorts or the proportions. And I'm sort of thinking, I'm like, we have still in this day and age are checking. When I started in public accounting, we had to wear stock with oh, yeah. our uh, shoes and we had, we had a skirt on. And I remember the year they finally said we could wear open toed shoes. And you would have thought that we were somehow, and I'm like, I'm not that old, right? Like, and I'm, we're still 20 years later fighting this like ridiculous dress code where I'm like, we need to stand up and give some other opinion. And if you look at the school and you look at who's making the decisions, there isn't a single female in a position of power who could influence in this say, you know, some girls have longer torsos than others and that their arm length to their knees is not consistent. But no guy has ever had to try on a bathing suit and figured out whether one or two pieces is going to work. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Just Our daughters could get together on the whole dress code thing because, um, yeah, it just doesn't. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Um, so. I, I'm fascinated for this question. If you could work in a different job field, what would it be? I honestly can't envision not being a CPA. Like I've had this question asked of me many times over the years. And honestly, unless I was able to like control everything, which isn't, you know, possible, I love what I do. Like I really, truly, um, I have a passion for accounting, which I know sounds crazy to people. Um, I had someone in my house the other day um, fixing right above my office is where the crawl space is to get to my attic. And so they have to come into my office to get up there. We had a leak, of course, with all this ridiculous heat, the air conditioning was leaking. Um, and so she comes in and if you come into my office, I've got two big umbrellas in here. So I have lighting to teach in and I've got all of this tech to be able to teach from my desk. And so the woman asked, and it was a female, pretty cool that was doing my AC tech, which I thought was awesome. Um, and she's like, Oh, what do you do? And I was like, I teach accounting. And like her face just was like, Oh, that sucks. And I was like, no, no, I really love it. And she goes, well, who do you teach accounting to? And she, I was like adults. She goes, Oh, I took one accounting class in college. And that was for me, but I have always, my freshman year, I wasn't, I didn't go to school to be an accountant. Honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but my mom told me that when I graduated, I had to be able to pay for myself. So I applied to the business school because I figured I'd get a job that could pay for myself. And my very first day of school, my very first class so freshman year, you know, I think my class was 1015. That was the earliest class you could have at school. So 1015 was freshman 101 accounting. And my professor's name was Srini Von Sunsang Kanguru Swami which okay, was a little bit overwhelming on your first day of school. Um, but Srini, who I still talk to to this day, um, was just amazing. And when my debits equaled my credit and my child balance balance, like it just brought me such, you know, just sheer joy. And then I took 102, which was managerial accounting. And I hated every second of it with like every bone in my body. And I told him, I'm not taking accounting. I'm not majoring accounting. This is awful. And he's like, no, no, no. You have to stick it out. Intermediate one and two are all financial. And I was like, I don't know this managerial stuff. This sucks. Like, I don't want to do this. And he was like, no, no, no. Just take intermediate. See if you, you know, see if you like it. 
And I had uh, Professor Anderson, Kirsten Anderson, who was her first year at Georgetown, uh, literally brand new faculty. And I just fell in love with accounting. And so I've had this passion and literally my senior year, I was a teaching assistant. And so I got the opportunity to teach accounting. And even when I went to work, I taught for Becker right out of school, like right out of school, right after I passed the CPA exam, I sat with Becker. I studied with Becker. I passed the CPA exam. I graduated in June or May and I, I passed in November back when he was only offered twice a year. Um, so I started teaching like right out of school, right away. And I've always had a passion for taking something that is not the easiest language uh, and converting it to something that is really um, approachable, right? Taking education and making it approachable for the people who have to do it. Because I recognize that my clients in particular firms they're busy doing, they're out at the client, they're doing, they don't have time to read the standard. They don't have time to go through it. So my job is to digest it for them and give it them in, you know, digestible points that they can then use to be successful because I don't serve any clients. I don't get to protect the public. My job is to make them really successful. And I have had such a sheer pleasure in doing this. And I, I go back to Donna Taylor, who was the coach who convinced me to open my own business. And I want to like hug her, who is also a recovering CPA. She's now a coach, um, but she um, she just really made my day. And so I can't envision myself doing anything but what I do today at this point. So I guess I'm kind of boring. No, 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 no. I think that you found your way. And like, you know, um, that question, what a different job field, again, back to this book, Flux, have this portfolio type career. And I think you've had a portfolio type career because you've done a lot of different things. Um, so yeah. I've tested all out. I've done internal audit. I have done external audit. I worked in industry. I taught at the university level. I mean, I've had the opportunity to try all aspects of accounting and auditing. And I will tell you, teaching it has been the biggest pleasure. I didn't actually enjoy doing auditing. So honestly, I uh, started my career in audit. I left, I went into industry. I then did some teaching. I went back into audit, but I went into national office. I did not go back into field work because I hated field work. And it's kind of funny. I love to teach how to do an audit, but I don't actually like to do it. Uh, so don't make me go out in the field and like pull samples, but I love to tell people how to do it. So it's a, I have found my calling and I'm quite content with that. Yeah, we all need to find our calling. And um, I still think I'm I'm developing my calling, but <laughs> plenty of time. Our, our callings can evolve over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so this is another question I asked during because of kind of COVID still is what have you been binging and is it anything to do with your job? Like on t Netflix or are you watching Ted Lasso? I am not. Um, oh however, God, we are binging on it. <laughs> We are binging a very strange binge right now. And it's not me. It's my husband, but my whole family. Again, I only have one kid, so it's a little bit easier. Um, but my husband, you know, had wanted to see, and I don't know if you remember this uh, this television show. It was 24 with Keith or Sutherland. Oh, yeah. Like, you have to go way back. Like, they don't have real cell phones and their computers have, like, actual backs to them. So it's great conversation with a 14-year-old. Like, let me tell you. Like, she's like, what is that? I'm like, that's a cell phone. She's like, it opens up. I'm like, that was called a flip phone. <laughs> like, you know, going way back. Um, but we have now watched six seasons of it during COVID. Uh, and we think we have two left, but we have been, you know, we watch it probably 
two to three nights a week. She's again, rides and swims. So we don't have too many evenings to ourselves. And then we have shows on the weekend. Um, but when we do have a nice alley last night, we had an hour together before she went to bed. And that's what we've been watching is we've been binging 24 and literally the reliving that error. And it's kind of funny to see it in this perspective. I will say, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, now looking back at the technology we have and all the things that have changed over this period of time, I'm like, oh, he would have been so much better off if he had today's technology when he was doing all the things he was doing. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so funny. I, I, I really liked 24. So um, that goes to what's, did you watch Homeland? Mm -mm. No, oh, I'm terrible home. TV watchers in our house. Again, like with the, our schedule and obviously before COVID I was traveling. So what, yeah. you know, I would be on the road three days a week home for, and so I didn't, you know, and normally I'd have one fly out night. So usually I didn't have a lot of the time to watch TV. So we're not big TV watchers, which is why binging again, it's, it's taken us about, I think we're about six months into our six series here, but um, it takes us a longer time to watch them because we just don't generally have that much time to watch TV. But um, you know, even when the Olympics gotten away for a little while there to, to make sure that we had the opportunity to go through it. But uh, yeah, we're not good TV watchers. People are always talking about the a TV show and I'm like, yeah, I can't get attached to anything because there's no commitment to actually taking the time to watch it. Well, I'm going to push Ted Lasso and I think it would be great for your daughter. Like, so, um, truly, I think it would be, it's my favorite show. It's the happiest thing I watch. I am pushing Ted Lasso these days. What is one piece of, I'm going to say, Melissa goodness to leave with the audience career-wise or anything? What's Melissa goodness? I would say really just be open to your career. I think if I had done what I wanted to do, which was just find another firm or do something, you know, very similar, um, be willing to try something different and, you know, being uh, entrepreneurially adverse did not help me out there. Um, and in the long run, it was the best decision I ever made. And so something I have definitely learned is to listen when people have those kind of dissenting views or have an alternative view of you that you can't see because you can't see yourself in that perspective. You can't, I could not envision myself as an entrepreneur um, and, you know, give them that opportunity and get those diverse views from lots of different people. Cause you just might surprise yourself with what you learned. Cause I did, I tried a lot of things in accounting and I never found, you know, the thing that made me happy. And then all of a sudden, you know, I gave someone an opportunity to share an alternative view. And I was like, yes, like this is really what I wanted, but I would never have seen it on my own. So get those alternative views. They do make a big difference. So I think your name should be Melissa Glowing Galasso because I, you guys can't see her, um, but she's like glowing this whole entire time talking about her career and where she's been able to help people and everything. So I just, you know, another great woman in fraud. Um, and thank you so much, Melissa, for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure and catching up with you is always a plus in my book. Will you ever look at Disney and horses the same? I certainly don't, and I love Disney. Melissa loves fraud and lifelong learning as much as I do, and that is saying something. Having amazing guests like Melissa makes my job so much fun. If you could see how often I am laughing during these podcasts, you would know why. Thank you again for stopping by. Next week is Tracy Mayleaf, and you are going to be blown away by her story and her mad OSINT skills. See you next week.